Welcome to the Leadership of Fools. We are about to up anchor and set sail into the heady ocean of business dilemmas and discussions. Nothing's going to stop us. Today's episode tackles the dilemma. How do we realize truly diverse and inclusive workplaces? The conversation enables us to address that bias does exist, that more diversity not only means more conflict, but it means more innovation and better decision-making, that economics must stack up and we must work at the money issue. We need more showcasing of where it is working and how we can benchmark against these new standards, and that inclusion and the management of inclusion is the next big step. Our guests today are Kate Tempe and Nat Fian. Kate was a recent contestant on Australian Survivor and a very experienced global leader in finance. Nat has a wealth of experience in marketing and is especially passionate about tech companies and their people. Uh, we've got some people here gathered to talk the talk. Over to my right, as always, the ever faithful, always reliable, Colin Beatty. Oh, it's a pleasure, Rick. It's uh, wonderful to be here again. Uh, I've got a rapid-fire question for you, just to keep you on your toes. Thank you. Uh, what's your favourite leadership quote, Colin? Oh, favourite leadership quote? Uh, 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 you know what came to my mind instantly? Yeah. It's the classic fish fish one. So do I teach a person how to fish yeah. or give them a fish to feed them? <laughs> and I think, it. you know, there's an old... You know, when I grew up, mm. God, I, you, you don't want to hear this, do you? But I, I grew up on the Mur- I grew up on the Murray River. Yes, and my dad and I spent many years fishing <laughs> and trying to catch a Murray cod. Yeah, and we ended up always catching carp. And carp. I think that's why that pretty cliched yeah. quote mm. uh, still resonates very deeply for yeah. me. So they can teach you how to fish, but can they teach you how to catch the Murray cod? That's and they the never question. could. And so there's so many layers to that quote that it's so unattainable for you. That's right. As this podcast continues, we start to learn more and more about your childhood, Colin. And I like it. We're starting to build a real picture of who you are as a child and how that shaped the uh, the business leader that you are today. It's a pleasure. Uh, and over here we've got a Nat Fian. Uh, Nat, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rick. I've got a little question for you. Uh, book, movie or art that shaped you as a leader? Oh, uh, I think it was Lean In. Lean In? The, and I really didn't like it. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> yeah, of course. Because she lent in by taking her children into the office at 6am on a Saturday. And I thought, what kind of example is this setting for <laughs> our female leaders where to be successful, yep. they need to work 24 hours a day and take their kids as a fun activity into the office on a Saturday yep. morning. So you leaned right out of that one. So yeah, I thought, <laughs> that's not the leader that I want to be. I actually want to demonstrate to people that there is a thing called work-life balance mm-hmm. where you can lead the two separately. You've got some frank and honest feedback for her and she's she, uh, she needs to lean right listening? into it. That's <laughs> <laughs> today she's our only subscriber. <laughs> we're, we're speaking specifically to her. And and she was my next guest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't don't check your text messages. That's right. Uh, and Kate Tenby. Welcome. Hi, Thank you. a uh, little little quick one. Who's your most respected leader? Oh, this could this could polarize. It could polarise. You've got to give a real political answer here. Well, I do come with a political answer. You know, I I do hold Barack Obama there, but also the Obama family. Uh, The unit. The unit and what Michelle has achieved. Where do I? I could go on with examples. Mm. But to me, they are inspirational leaders. 
very odd, nodding heads all around the table. Mm. Yeah. Although Michelle did say that her biggest inspiration as a leader was the book Lean In. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> really shaped You know, her I tried and... to start a campaign to get the Obamas to come to Australia um, in any capacity. Like we would sponsor them, we would, yeah. we would, you know, we, we, the absence of leadership in our, our country and here are an amazing family that could mm. just enrich our country tomorrow. Mm. So, How'd you go with that? No, I went nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, we do have a question here. Well, I'm going to go with the second one just because it ties in with what we've just been discussing. So how biased, conscious or not are Australian leaders? Look, I think if I'm really honest when I hear that question around as leaders, are we biased? Now, it could be unconscious. It could, I think it is becoming more conscious. But I do think that for the majority of leadership groups in Australia today, we are really biased. And we see that around the table because there's a certain human instinct that gets comfort from being around like-minded people. And so therefore, generally when we're recruiting or we're looking for people to work with or alongside, we're just naturally going to want to work with people who have some kind of similarity to us. I think leaders are becoming more aware of it. But if I had to answer that question on the whole... I would say that at this stage we are pretty biased. And I would agree, Nat, there is an awareness. I mean, there's no organisation out there that's not talking about the importance of diversity and having a composition of teams that represent a diverse group of people. Uh, I think the question that still needs to really be tackled is how does in, what does an inclusive environment really look like mm-hmm. and how does it feel for people in teams to be included? Uh, and my experience is actually when you pose that question, it's pretty simple. People want to be acknowledged. They want other people to say hello to them. Really looking at them in an elevator mm. is high on the requirement. Uh, being valued in the work they do. Being um, interested in them. Interested in them. Very basic human yeah. nature needs and not at this what does bias, unconscious bias, you know, I think it really helps break it down into practicalities within the workforce. Can I, can I just emphasise completely what uh, I think you're alluding to? Um, I'm all for us um, measuring diversity and getting, getting it seriously on the agenda. I don't think... We have contemplated what next with it. And essentially you can have an incredibly diverse uh, team that is effectively not functional. Precisely. (laughs) Uh, Because the more diverse it will be, the more inherent conflict that will exist. And until we actually educate leaders not only how to create diverse teams but then to create inclusive environments to leverage the benefit of diversity – I believe fundamentally uh, the economics will tell us a story. This has a real risk of going off the agenda if the economics don't make sense. And the way to make the economics make sense is to actually leverage diversity for creativity and innovation and and truly better decision-making. So it is that next step. It but is. But the next step's not that, not that complicated. Yeah, although I think we're doing a huge amount in the education space at the moment. So... We're talking about it. We're Mm -hmm. talking about where the benefits are. And as leaders, we're talking about understanding the value of diversity and what it can deliver. To your point, in terms of then the change process that is required to actually build an inclusive, diverse organisation, like that is a huge undertaking. And I don't think that, to your point, we are at that stage of maturity at the moment where we're willing to really 
change entire organisation, whether it's processes, systems and people, to create that in, yeah. that inclusive environment. And that scares me because um, I, I know the way change really works and uh, there's a point when if this doesn't pay off that it will be re- we'll rejected. The, the basic we'll economics revert. of we'll diversity, if it's, if, it's not a, if it's not viable, then it will slowly revert. And it's always not going to be viable before it becomes viable. Yep, so what you're I saying is you. it's going <laughs> to create this tension and it's yeah. going to create all these organisational issues before you can generate the value out of it. So as leaders, how do you get through that phase, mm-hmm. acknowledge that it exists and keep pushing through? And really it is testing everyone's ego. And the space that it has is that it's conflicting self more than the organisation and that's where the roadblock is. Uh, so I, I know from experience uh, we ran some workshops where individual people who were apparently charged with diversity and supporting LGBTI, all they needed to do was gather 10 people together and ask the question, what does a diverse environment look and feel for you? It took six months. <laughs> ten people can be hard All to find, I said to be fair. It is hard to find. Well, Rick, there you're was, right. There were supposed to be ten people in this podcast. We could only get four. There were, well, that was the irony is people said they were going to turn up and they didn't turn up. Yeah. Or this didn't happen. For and diverse reasons. And it, to me it just demonstrated how, in fact, for that person who was happy to be a champion of LGBTI but to really talk about the issues and to really then actually where are those ten people to hear, and then what do you do once you've heard? And in Australia, for Australian businesses especially, I don't think we've seen it, to your point, Colin, around the value. So you've got groups of leaders who now understand and talk the talk, right? So we understand thematically what diversity is and why it's valuable. We know that we have to build an inclusive workspace and workplace. But at the same time, I don't think there's enough organisations around us doing it well that you can then model from and that is then creating the benchmark. Mm. Yep, yep. You might, We might need to edit this piece out, but I'm going to say it he's anyway. Gonna, so, um, he's going to swear a lot. So I'm getting more heavily involved with uh, concepts like male champions of change and I'm going to and, – and Kate and I have already had this conversation, but the ego part of that actually – also scares me, um, so that if this story doesn't some involve level... something about your childhood, I'm going to be disappointed. Colin. <laughs> Fish and egos. Fish and ego, that's right. So, but I think it, at some level, it's become the badge of honour. Like, yeah. with it used to be executive coaching. The early days of executive coaching, it was a badge of honour. My executive coach, um, and now I'm a male champion of change. So, I. I actually okay if people aren't doing this for altruistic reasons, but I want them to do it for economic reasons. Uh, and I, that's what I'd love to see uh, us becoming a leader in the world around. So the question that I'd have for you, Colin, given the amount of executive teams, for example, that you're exposed to, yep. how much diversity do you see in the majority of executive groups that you work with? Uh, so the answer is... In contrast to how much they're talking about diversity. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think you know what I'm about to say. <laughs> he's a, he's exploding with the number. Hold out, hold on to our hats. And and it, but it's what plays out with it through the lack of. And it's not even uh, it's not even how many males, females. It's not even the minorities. It's um, I get bored hearing the same topics repeated over and over again. I get bored with 
the CEO saying something and three other executive members repeating the same message. Um, I get bored with not being prepared to listen to, absolutely deliberately listen to a fundamentally opposite view. You know, what would it take mm-hmm. for us to bring in an opposite view into this room right now? Um, and that's what I mean, the human instinct that we're, mm-hmm. that we have to deliberately go against yep. to be surrounded by like-minded yep. people or by people that are similar to us in some kind of way because it does provide some kind yep. of satisfaction and even through recruitment. And I think it also brings in the Australian cultural perspective. I wonder whether executives um, take seriously the need to truly educate themselves. I I once worked with a colleague, um, and uh, his name is John. I learned a lot from John. He actually gave an executive team some advice. He actually said, I actually would love to see four of you quit right now and go and live in Europe or America or South America and just get a life. <laughs> he got rejected, like as in <laughs> that was the end of his assignment. Um, but what was powerful about that commentary was that sense of um, if we haven't lived a life and we're making these incredibly complicated decisions, and even if that means I don't expect everyone to have the answers, but I do expect a leadership team to be prepared to bring in that different thinking, that different mm-hmm. education. Um and I don't even think it's anything to do with how old you are. Like it is the no. classic 45 to 55-year-old male white Australian who's at that executive table. I'm not, I'm not convinced that those people can't be more, more diverse. Mm. You know, I don't. I, there's two pieces and it. it takes me to the leader I'm working with in this startup um, yeah. who is Australian but yeah. has a global perspective and two things that stand out for me about him. Uh, one is recognising how easy it is to build an organisation from scratch. You know, so we've achieved over 50% diversity now and we've something we're very proud of across 16 people. Mm-hmm. You know? yep. <laughs> so it's a, acknowledging building that today is far easier than moving huge ship that we've got. Yes. The second thing so I would So you cross say, the 10 people threshold, which is, as we've discussed, I, we is the hardest amount of people to get together. But once <laughs> so you get past together. 10, well, the sky's the limit. And we'll ask them about inclusion later. <laughs> but it's diversity on paper. But yeah. I think it's a mindset um, and something I hold – dear to me is I think that through every conversation you are going to learn something. Yes. The leader I work with now has the same view. Right. And I think that is a standout, that he will meet or talk so with... So a curious mind. A curious mind. And it's not that he's frivolous. You know, his favourite... My favourite word is productivity. His favourite word is prioritisation. Yeah. Right. So absolutely he's not going to achieve what he's achieved in the sphere of what he does... But he comes Your favourite word with, is productivity? Oh, yeah, I love it. Mm. I've got a few others. <laughs> That's a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> At least both um, of your words start with P, so I feel like yeah, there's some common no, ground. You know, maybe it's a theme, not a... You know, <laughs> anyway, let's get... No, it's not but a I word. Don't, Rick, just don't... And so I think the important thing there is he comes with a curious mind and as a leader, that to me is pretty powerful. But it's also interesting that in some ways you're obviously values aligned, which is why you kind of get along well, Yeah. which then talks back to the, you know, working w- well with people that are like-minded. So, yeah, I- you know, for the rest of his direct reports, for example, and, and for your yep. leadership team in that environment, um, are there a lot of people with that productivity kind of mindset and similar values or is it truly diverse in terms of thinking? I think it is because of... Uh, age, background and approach. 
Because but then, but then, my next question would be: Is that enough? Right. So, mm. does diversity is that about gender, race, and age, or is it about diverse thinking? Mm. Yeah. So, there's mm. two separate types of diversity. There's the tick the box diversity that we're, we're, we've got a certain percentage of people represented across the across the organisation, but then they could all, as you say, have the same outlook and same mm. ambitions and 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 come at issues from the same perspective, whereas you're going to have someone from the same demographic but they've all got a different viewpoint mm. on how to tackle something. Mm. And so that's diversity of mindset and then diversity of uh, demographics, I guess. I think to- I would, to answer that, Nat, um, I think it would come ticking on both boxes. And the reason for that is that people have had different backgrounds. So it comes back to your leader, John, who said, go out and do something. This is a group of individuals that have come together after short and long careers. Right. But both academic, I think, uh, as well as deeply institutionalised, as uh, well as uh, activists. And I actually think that background is what is the power that's leading into that diversity. So, And you're getting the value out of that diversity and seeing it play out, which is fantastic. Hopefully. In very new <laughs> <laughs> Can I circle back to where I think, Kate, you almost started us around this, that sense of the simplicity of um, being inclusive? Mm. And, and I think this is, again, very fundamentally human. We... We have in our DNA this absolute need to belong and it's actually a survival instinct. So we seek out from a very early age our tribe and when we're in a tribe, we actually feel safer, stronger and more able to survive. And when we're on the margins of a tribe or on the outer, we feel vulnerable and exposed. I could attest to that. (laughs) Yes, which I I know we're desperately curious to ask about and we will. Um, uh, So I think... The simplicity of that, because you know, at some level, that's you know, that's that's a deep commentary. But the simplicity is, it is the normal human things mm. that serve us best. Mm. We feel like we're part of a tribe <laughs> when we're valued. We feel like we're part of a tribe when people connect with us and are interested in us. We f- feel like we're part of a tribe when people look out for us. So it is the the simple human things. Tell us about Survivor. <laughs> I've been waiting yes. and waiting. Was that, was that when I felt like I was part of a tribe or was that when I was booted, right? Because really all that Survivor does for its craziness uh, and is really take real life, strip it of all of its behaviours, corporate behaviours that we've got lear- had learned um, through our comfort and really show us those raw emotions of exactly what you talked about. Now, it plays out on a crazy television program, uh, but I think that's the intrigue of Survivor. And from the inside, so when all of those things were stripped back, what were the key things that you learned about that human behaviour that's just so ingrained in us? I think it actually comes exactly back to what Colin was talking about, that the need for validation and inclusion is pretty raw, you know, that we're, we seek that validation uh, and it's lonely to be on the outer. You know, that show amps that up even more because the need to be in the majority is, is you depend on that to continue on in the game. So it yeah, just it amplifies that. Like, yeah, like yeah. you have to be, if you're in the minority, you're, you're, von- you're more vulnerable than you've ever been. And you felt like you're on the out, outer uh, well, coming into it, absolutely. Uh, given my age, you know, I, you know, you're in the minority because there's only per tribe there's only two older people. Um, I didn't feel in the minority from a physical or a, a mental state. I felt very much connected, uh, but you are from an age 
and really... Survivor famously does sort of place anyone who's over a... It's not even... You don't even have to be even past a certain age. It's it's quite small, but... Thanks, Rick. (laughs) If you're not a young-looking sort of barista type, then you're already in the minority. Yeah, yeah, and you are spending an inordinate amount of time with people that you have no background with. So your social, the social game comes in very quickly uh, and so if you're starting on the outer. So it's a real expression of inclusion. It's a real expression of inclusion. And, and what we see on TV are all the edits that are talking specifically to how people are feeling and whether they're vulnerable and who's in and who's out. Yeah. In reality, in terms of a day, how much of the day, you know, as a percentage is actually spent focused on that kind of stuff versus the day-to-day living, whether, you know, it's finding food or fishing, et cetera? Yeah. There is a lot of time talking about strategy uh, and really what the next move is. Um, You've also, in the production of it, there is an amount where you're – chunks where you're taken off to do a challenge. So the day is purposefully compressed – you know, as I said, there are times when you, you just need to work hard to find firewood and do all of that sort of stuff. But you are taking that time to think about, okay, what's my next step? Uh, so I think it is absolutely accentuated in the production. Uh, you know, maybe it's half the time. You know, there is a time where you are just getting to know people. Um, and I would say one of my takeaways is I didn't think I would laugh so much. <laughs> you know, but I'm not sure that came across in the three episodes I was on. (laughs) So, you know, if that was my experience, then there is another piece of it. uh, Giggling Kate, they called her around camp. I'm not sure about that. (laughs) Go to the internet, they'll tell you what they called me. (laughs) Would Colin's ability to catch carp from a river have stood him in good stead on Survivor? I'm not sure how much carp (laughs) is there in Samoa, Um, but if you did, we'd love it. Yeah, Yeah, fantastic. But the Samoan cod eludes him forever. (laughs) That's right. Um, and the second part of the question uh, that we can circle around to is what would it take for Australian organisations to lead the world in achieving truly diverse and inclusive workforces? How can we action that? What can Australia do? I'm looking at our faces and I'm wondering. <laughs> oh, I just think it's I'm such asking, a big question. I'm just I feel like you to solve uh, the issue right uh, here. That's all I'm asking. Yeah. I feel like we're a long way behind to start with. We are fairly geographically isolated mm. and so we've also and already co- got some barriers that we need to yeah. overcome. We're as a culture, up to the rest we of the struggle world. with diversity yeah. anyway, culture-wide, not just in corporate culture but as, yes. a, as, as a society we struggle and there's a lot of stuff that we don't like to tackle head on. Absolutely and it's kind of this new topic that we're now trying to face into and address mm. whereas for mm. a lot of countries it's just been a natural part of their history for mm. centuries. We so really need someone to give us a TED us. talk isn't, to isn't unlock it. isn't that our opportunity? Because it's kind of like your example of the startup yep. mentality so it's the opportunity um, and what I mean by that is... But does Australia as a whole see it as an opportunity? I think there, there lies in the problem yeah. that they don't... We may see it as, wow, this great opportunity, but you look at the socialist you know, economies such as the Scandies, et cetera, as Nat says, it's a way of thinking that you respect different people's opinions. Mm. You Now, you maybe didn't want to pay the taxes that needed to fund all of those education systems, but it's a way of thinking and appreciating people. We don't come from that as our starting point. Mm. So I, I, it's not seen as an opportunity. So I think that's one of the barriers. And but this- maybe the leaders of today, sorry, Rick, no, you're right. but maybe the leaders of today as well and as leaders 
we the expectation needs to be that all of our leadership groups, whether it's politicians, whether it's corporate, et cetera, need to step up. So unless we dramatically change diversity and inclusion within organisations and from a political mm-hmm. standpoint, that, that cultural change won't happen. Can I... Um... Can I inquire about the improvisation experience? Of course um, you can, Colin. So um, one of the things that I'm struck by that when you get on stage and you, and it is a team sport mm-hmm. and it seems to, from an audience perspective, work better the more diverse the cast is. Yep. Um, and again, it's not, you know, it's not, not all gender stuff. It's the diverse thinking. Yep. And I'm struck by the fact that you do something pretty simple and that is you assume trust in each other, you make each other look good and the third but the most important one is you actually actually listen to each other. Like mm. I think that innovation comes from putting diverse group of people together and listening. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and as improvisers, we're always trying to work with different people so that we are getting um, yeah, those d- diverse uh, avenues to creativity so that we're, if we're... We work with the same people a lot, uh, which is fun because you, you can be comfortable, but you, you're, you're always generating uh, – you know what you're going to get. It's, it's, it's comfortable creativity, whereas if you want to sort of be more challenged, then you're, you're looking for different people. But that said, improvisation is famously lacks diversity as an art form globally, uh, especially um, you know in America especially. I know they struggle with improvisation being – you know. Uh, 20 to 30 year old white man's art form um, and that trying to get any inclusive inclusivity and diversity is a struggle and they um, and they they're always fighting against that Ma- mainly in America it's more of an issue it's less of an issue in Australia um, but it is it, it is always an issue um, I mean all art forms struggle with it as well it's a really interesting piece though because I imagine quite quickly you're actually seeing and demonstrating the benefits of the diversity and there's not many scenarios where so quickly you draw that out. So yeah. do you see people come along to these kind of events and activities and really take away an un- a deeper understanding of the benefit I, of the diversity? Yeah, I don't know. If, yeah, I, I imagine at some level if, if they've seen the comparisons of sort of a very beige cast that's um, uh, that lacks diversity, um, and then they see a more diverse cast. They can then they can they can compare and contrast. But some people only ever see one cast, or some people only ever see it. And so I mm. guess there's no way to know where the contrast is. Can I ask you the productivity question? Oh yes, because I reckon what might be missing here is diversity and inclusion. To what end? Mm. Um, and I kind of. I'm so curious about the productivity mindset that you might bring to this. Mm-hmm. To what end do you think we might tap into? I think it actually talks to innovation. Yes. And because it's something that's a little un- untangible, it's very hard for them to put the numbers around it. And when I talk about productivity, um, I think efficiency And efficiency means people feel like they are emotionally involved or economically involved or... So it isn't just an economic sense of productivity. It's one of how I feel productivity in in self as well as output. And that's got to be great for individuals and organisations. So when you bring it back to diversity... As Nat said, there's many conversations around the value of diversity and that's being presented, but really seeing the case on in in situ 
in organisations, that's the bit that's hard because is it going to produce a more innovative workplace? Is it what's our value on you know, a more happy, engaged you know, employees, all of these things are less tangible. But that's why we need the leadership and the belief that if I have that, I am going to have a better outcome. And and it does, and again, I've expressed my, maybe my passion, but also my, my concern about some of this. The first thing that is likely to happen when you create a diverse workforce is more conflict, more yep. confusion, more uh, worse decision-making, Mm-hmm. Um, until the culture catches up um, with the, the makeup of the mm-hmm. workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, I, I think what I'm really trying to say is it's got to be a long-term game here yep. that you're playing. Yep. And there is, you know, when we build it into something like ESG, and, you know, I'm just thinking from an investment perspective, um, there is evidence now ESG is, is environmental, social and governance. Yep. So thinking about those attributes or those risks in the construct of corporations and then the value of that, of how it plays out onto the share price, yep. for example. Yep. There is empirical evidence now that if there is higher value played to those attributes in governance, let's say, uh, then you will have better outcomes for the corporation, right? Yes. So governance could then lead into a little bit of this diversity. You know, I'm just creating the, the picture of the nexus of the dollar outcome of how it's better. Uh, we I'm also about this. know at another level yeah. that workplace engagement is something we measure and has a better economic out, outlet. Yeah. But having that knowledge, and I'm alluding back to what Nat's saying, it's something that everyone – it's People are convinced of the case of diversity now. You know, I think mm-hmm. 10 years ago we were at the table, you know, there needed to be what's the case for governance or what's the case for diversity. The yeah. case has been built but the next stage is how do we actually really take it on and that's that faith in the intangible that's yeah. going to give you the impetus to really dig deep and say what does inclusion look like um, and what does innovation look like, how do I get that? They're the organisations, in my view, that will thrive. And it's really interesting. I mean, I look at the organisations that I've worked in and you see so much more diversity in the workplace than you've ever seen before. And yep. it's fantastic. I agree, right? I agree, yep. And, and I think to some extent, you know, I've been lucky enough to work in environments where it's very prevalent as well because in and tech, you, can you I just need say you're about yeah, it's, it's the tech in, in tech, tech businesses. Yep. You're actually reliant often on international resources, or you're reliant on uh, working with international teams, for example. So I think we are probably ahead of the general curve. But then you look at changes to laws like the um, like the visa laws, right? That are then again limiting the number of skilled um, resources that we can bring into the country mm-hmm. because we want to higher local talent. But again, that's politicians and it's governance that's placing restrictions yep. on these organisations that are trying to increase diversity. So it's got to be supported supported all around. Yep. And it's tricky. I think, um, as you were saying, it's it's almost there's, – there's a shift in the whole mindset around diversity, which has been growing. Uh, and so companies that are starting up have a, a, a much easier, you know, they've got a better template. They're aiming for diversity from, from the start and that's going to be an easier prospect than the companies that have been um, are trying to tackle diversity from a – they've already retrofit. got – Retrofit. Yeah, they're trying to retrofit diversity. That's exactly right. Um, and that's going to be a much harder process and that's the, and that's the – but I guess it's more and more businesses are hopefully starting from a place of that mm-hmm. mindset that's going to make it easier all around. But I guess – it's funny because Australia as a 
culture, as I was saying, struggles. And, and I guess our dominant culture was a startup sort of 200 years ago. And if we just started now, we'd be coming from a better place. And we might have been able to sort of implement much a much more diverse sort of approach to, but well, we missed it by about 200 years. Well, was but that colonial? Was that? I was about to say 200 uh, years versus. I said the dominant culture. Dominant I did say the dominant culture. Thank you. I tried but to be then, very clear on that. But then back to the startup analogy, yeah. shouldn't that put yes. us in a better position to be embracing yeah, diversity because I think our so. t- limited 200 year history has been full of diversity I would love, I would versus love. the Europeans or the Americans? That, well, you know, I think we're touching on the history of Australia. Yeah. I mean, I think it all ties that- in. Something around our respect for Indigenous people yep. is reflective, A, of our deep-born culture mm-hmm. that we're not diverse and we're not accepting. Yeah, and I think that's what plays out possibly. That feels like oh, a really Kate, depressing I was, I was about to say, statement. For a moment I was optimistic and now I'm <laughs> facing reality again. And I think I think this is really – this doesn't surprise me that this topic is doesn't have easy answers except – and I'm going to go back to what you said at the start, Kate, except for the simplicity of the human aspect of this. Mm. Um, so if you ask me the takeaway question around this, yes, I, I think there's two big takeaways for me. One is let's work hard on the economics around this, meaning let's make um, – yes, there is a business case, but I don't think it's compelling enough mm-hmm. just yet. Like that when you do this, the share price – uh, can transform. When we do this, we are far more innovative. Uh, I think we have to build a much more compelling case around that. So that's at a big macro level and at the micro level, this is not that hard. It's the human part of of belonging. Yep. Uh, what do you need to do for others to help them feel like they belong? Simple as that. Beautiful. Nat, I've got a question for you. <gasps> Where do you see diversity thriving in different work environments or have you actually have you seen diversity thrive not only Best in the numbers diversity. yeah so look where i see diversity probably thriving and it's the most evident is where you have like a technology crew or team right so technology sort of developers can't work in isolation they are dependent on the full team and the roles that those people play and in a lot of instances especially here You've got teams that are very diverse because we have relied on people who have um, come from international universities or they've, you know, they've got a diverse background, to your Mm -hmm. point earlier, or in some cases we will be working, so a team will be combined across two geographical locations. So you're actually seeing diversity at play because you're seeing a team of people uh, working together in multiple locations from multiple backgrounds who need to come together even from a language perspective um, and then from a tools and systems perspective is working out how those teams operate effectively and efficiently. And the satisfaction of those teams I think is far greater um, than even a local team who are working together. Like those teams get the diversity, they are so proud of the way that they've been working and what they've been able to deliver despite the things that might naturally be seen as hurdles working to their advantage and I think that's really exciting. Beautiful. All right, we've already touched on Colin's uh, takeaway. Kate, what's your takeaway? To be brave and ask the question around those that you work with, what does inclusion look like? Nice. And to be smart enough to then listen to the response and lead the organisation to the behaviours that are needed so people feel included and recognised. Beautiful. That's good. Nat? My takeaway, I think, is really about 
the need for all leaders and anybody who holds a decision-making sort of power in this country to be not only thinking differently but acting differently. And for me that plays actually quite strongly through to decision-making but also things like recruitment. And when we talk about belonging and we talk about that need to belong, so even, you know, through recruitment processes is acknowledging that you will recruit people that are like you, whether it's in mindset or or otherwise, and right through the organisation training people to uncover that unconscious bias um, to try to actually activate change. Beautiful. Uh, Take away, Rick, before uh, we finish. Never stop trying to catch the Murray cod of diversity. That's my takeaway. (laughs) If we can just get those carp are good. It's diverse. (laughs) If we can just get ten people together. Teach them how to catch Murray Cod, then I think we'll make some palpable changes. <laughs> but until we can find 10 people willing to learn how to fish, <laughs> we won't get anywhere. Love it. Upon reflection, we've relabeled this episode diversity, inclusion, and productivity. There are three mentoring hits. Number one, it is time to work on the economics, it's time to commercialize diversity and inclusion and really engage the head. Number two, we can still engage the heart, especially through stories of belonging. What difference it makes when we feel like we belong in a team. We can meet the basic human needs. And our third mentoring hit, let's go back to measures. Let's go back to benchmarking, the nexus between diversity and share price. It's time to take diversity and inclusion from a movement to a business driver. Thanks for listening. Leadership of Fools is a Somersault production. Somersault works with organisations through transformation and growth. Please subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or wherever you do your listening. And don't forget to visit leadershipoffools.com.